The book of Hosea is one of those books I think a lot of Christians wish was not in the Bible. <laughs> it makes you squirm. Some, I think, are embarrassed by it because it speaks of judgment. I know some Christians who apologize for judgment in the Bible. They try to explain it away. It's kind of like having a racist relative. You learn to just ignore him or her or reject him or her, but there are some instances where you just can't get away from them, right? A God who judges sin is seen not only today as being outmoded, but it's wrong, according to many modern Christians. They say Jesus was not Old Testament. He was all love, no judgment. The problem with this man-made conception of Jesus is that it doesn't fit the biblical record. And I think it's a gross injustice to many people who are looking for honest answers to some of the bigger questions of life. The fact is, is that there is a future event called the judgment seat of who? The judgment seat of Christ. It's talked about in the Bible in the New Testament. It ought to tip you off that Jesus has something to do with holding us accountable. John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. <laughs> Many deny that Christ has anything to do with judgment, but the clarity and the number of Scripture that address the topic and the very words of Jesus debunk this idea. Sadly, I think man-made ideology often reigns supreme in people's minds, not theology, not what the Bible has to say. I just merely want to make clear this point. The judgment is not just from the Old Testament. Now, we've defined what this means. I think you could just say it's synonymous with holding people accountable for their actions. And there's a God who executes his justice. And it's not just an Old Testament topic, but it's a New Testament topic. It's a Jesus topic. Judgment does not exist in isolation by itself in the Bible, but it's right alongside the grace of God and the gospel giving hope to everyone who believes. You can't have one without the other. Such is the case of the book of Hosea. If you read through Hosea, you see these stern announcements of judgment, but there's always this window in which people can repent and find hope. And as hard as Hosea is to read at times, and I admit it, it can be difficult, I think it's a shining ray of God's grace inserted right alongside the judgment so that we're never to give up hope. I suppose there are some that are probably wondering, why in the world would you choose Hosea as a book of the Bible to go through? I mean, isn't it depressing, all this talk about judgment? Well, I'd say a couple things. Number one is that I think it's a dangerous thing to reject or ignore passages that are uncomfortable to us. I believe that the Bible was written for us. And so if I start throwing out passages that I don't like or I think are uncomfortable, that's on me. That, that, that's a problem. 
I mean, loving parents often have uncomfortable conversations with their children, and they do that because they love them and they want to see them mature. Secondly, the judgment of God flows out of his character, and that includes his justice. It's a part of his beauty as a person. Deuteronomy says, the rock, his perfect work, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And the psalmist writes, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Thirdly, I'd say this, that humankind being finite and God being omniscient and perfect and infinite, with that kind of a relationship, we ought to assume that there are going to be things that we don't always get or fully understand, right? I mean, just if I were to talk with a guy that's got a, a PhD in chemistry and he starts talking to me about that, I'm like, whoa, 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 bud. I mean, you're going to have to explain your terms. And even when he does, I'm like, you know, I'm out of here. All right, okay. It's going to be difficult maybe to understand. Well, how about an infinite God, infinitely perfect and holy? Don't you think there might be at least some things that we initially have a hard time understanding? Now, I believe that God, you might say, dumbs it down for us, okay? But I think he wants to communicate to us clearly, all right, so that we can understand. That's what his Bible is for. But when I add this other component, that being human, I'm biased. I'm biased toward myself. And that finiteness along with my own bias, and all you got to do is just remember one of your last arguments you had with your uh, spouse. You'll understand how biased you are. We're not people that are, are quick to admit we make mistakes, right? We're usually defensive. So when you add all of that onto this issue, I would submit that the judgment of God is a classic case of reminding us that we have limitations, all right? We have fleshly propensities that get in the way of us understanding. Then I'll just leave you with this question. Well, I'm not going to leave this sermon with this question, but this, this point. Some of you were hoping, maybe that's the end. No, sorry. Got another hour and a half to go, all right? All right. <laughs> Do we really want a God who does not have the wisdom and power to execute justice? Do we really want a God who does not have the ability or the will to right the wrongs in the world? I don't. In fact, it's one of the things that gives us hope. I know that God is going to make these things right. So, I approach this book of Hosea with honestly a degree of trepidation, but also with openness and excitement to learn more of, about God, that he has uh, lovingly chosen to reveal himself to us. And part of that is that he's a God of justice. And Hosea is a book about God announcing to his people Israel that they've walked away to worship idols and they've become like a prostitute instead of faithful to their one true Jehovah God. We're going to read through our passage. 
uh, verses 8 through 15. Let's all stand. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he's determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will turn again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Verse 8 and 9 speaks of blow the horn. It's a call that there's a siren that's going off in Israel. And they better heed the words from Hosea. There's going to come a day in which Israel will have to pay the piper and reap the consequences of their spiritual and physical adultery. Now, this is a warning about military invasion, and they better be looking out. Benjamin, we said before, is a tribe in southern, the southern kingdom of Judah. Ephraim is a tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. The three cities mentioned, Gibeah, Ramah, Bethaven, are situated in Judah, but very close to the border of the two kingdoms. Judah is becoming a staging area for an attack upon Israel by Judah. And these cities are all within 10 miles of Jerusalem. Blow the ram's horn is an emergency call to muster the fighting men because their land is going to get invaded. Now, the Lord would not only use this conflict between the north and the south, but also the imminent invasion of Assyria to make good on his promise to execute justice to see if his people would wake up. It is sure. It is going to happen. It is an unalterable uh, decree. Fulfillment of these decrees that God had made came to fruition with Assyria in its conquest between 745 and 722 BC. I want us to read through a historical passage from the Old Testament that confirmed these episodes. This is from 1 Chronicles 5. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Brought them to Hala, Habar, Hera, and the river Gozen to this day. And then the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habar, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Here's why this is happening. His word is indeed sure. The judgment has come. 
The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Judah would not be spared of God's judgment. The bullseye of this judgment was upon Israel, but Judah was guilty as well. They were guilty of breaching the covenant that God made with his people. And they were like those who move a boundary stone. This was a, uh, a great sin because it was stealing. It was forbidden in the law in Deuteronomy 19.14. It carried a curse along with it. It was stealing property. You don't build a privacy fence in your backyard 10 feet into your neighbor's yard. That's stealing. This is essentially what was taking place, is that they were, uh, it's like they are stealing property. Everybody knew this was wrong, and yet you do it. And God's anger will come on the people like the waters. This is a, a nod to the flood account. Not that Judah and Israel are going to be flooded, but it's like the flood in that it brought about the judgment of humanity upon these wicked, uh, wicked rulers and the people because they were corrupt and violent. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God being God can see the hearts of the people and they are doing evil continually. Their deep-seated corruption precipitated the flood and so it would be with Judah. Again, not to have a flood, but to be judged. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he is determined to go after filth. The oppression of Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom, came at the hand of Judeans and also at the hand of the Assyrians during their invasion. And the impression, the, the oppression that he speaks of is from a foreign power. It says they're crushed in judgment. What does that mean? Their lives are shattered. Nothing is like it was. The comfort is gone. The normalcy is gone. All of this because of their sin. They went after filth. The divine verdict is that they were all responsible for their choices. You know, if, if there's anything that typifies modern humankind, it is the unwillingness to be responsible for our choices, right? What we typically do is we blame. We blame our spouse, we blame our family, we blame our parents. You know, it was actually a revelation for me to realize uh, somewhere along the lines of uh, for over 40 years of marriage that Janet doesn't make me do anything. She doesn't make me angry. She doesn't make me spout off. She doesn't make me say things I shouldn't say. I'm responsible for all of that, right? Now, I can say to her, hey, this doesn't help if you do this or say this, but I'm still responsible for all of my actions and all of my words. This is what Israel was not understanding. The divine verdict is that they were responsible for their choices, they went willingly after filth. I mean, when things start to go to pot, don't we often blame others? But this was a result of their choices. To abandon Jehovah God, to go after idols, 
and immorality. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. What does a moth do? It eats away at cloth. Dry rot means decay. This will be Israel and Judah's fate. God was sovereignly in control of the international scene. Do you hear what I just said? God is sovereignly in control. So no matter who's in office, his president, who's sovereignly in control? That's exactly right. And those three of you that said it, I know you believe it. The others are struggling to understand that. When Israel and Judah cease prospering and fall to another empire, it's under the sovereignty of God. They would be forcibly exiled from their land. It makes me wonder, of the things that we experience in this country, and some it's like, how did we get here? Where, you know, we don't know right from wrong, we don't know the difference between a man and a woman, and all, you know, I decide this, not God. All of this just craziness. What it, it's a Romans 1 situation, I think, where God is just letting out more line and people are experiencing the consequences of their behavior and of their, of their beliefs. And that's a part of the judgment. You will you'll feel this. Okay? When Ephraim saw the sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. So when they realized they were in trouble, instead of going to God, they went to Assyria to try to mitigate the consequences by forming an alliance with Assyria. And Assyria was a greedy overseer, not a healer. We read of an episode in 2 Kings 17 that epitomizes this. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Oshia, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, uh, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. So what we see here, and later talks about him carrying off the Israelites, you, you made this alliance with Assyria and they turned on you. But God was sovereign and allowed all of that to happen. Captured, imprisoned, invaded. This was the result. And they tried a political solution to a spiritual problem. Does that sound familiar? A political solution for a spiritual problem. What was needed was repentance. And that's what's needed for us as a country. It's repentance. It's a spiritual revival. It's nothing bad or wrong with Christians being involved in politics. That's not the problem. It's putting politics above 
relationship with God, relationship with other Christians, above allegiance to the gospel. This is what plagues many churches in America. Listen, I ask you this. We read this passage and we think, man, you know, that was thousands of years ago. Wait, 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 wait. Do you really think that divine justice is removed from us? I don't. I think that's what we are experiencing, at least partially. And conversely, is God, is God not able to intervene when his people repent? Absolutely. And that's what's needed. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. You ever seen one of those nature shows where um, they display the hunting prowess of lions and they cannot help as, as you look at it, to be awed by the speed, the, the cunning, and the effectiveness. I have a friend that actually went on a, a, a safari in Africa and was surrounded by a pride of wild lions. He was with a party. He was on a flatbed trailer, had a gun in his hand, and it was dusk. You could barely see the lead lion ahead. It's quite a story. A place I would not want to be. And I ask, what? You did this willingly. You wanted to do this. Yeah, yeah. All right. But a lion and a pride lion have been known to actually take down a victim as large as an elephant. So Israel and Judah are like a victim of lions in pursuit. They will be hunted, they will be torn apart carried away like the lions carry away pieces of meat to be enjoyed by their captors, the Assyrians. And no human power can avert or escape for help. God's justice will stand. Now this story, this passage, would be downright depressing if God's judgment was in a vacuum and that was all there is, but it's not. When God deals with his children in judgment, we call that discipline, right? It's discipline for his people to repent. And when it comes to his discipline for his people, that's the fruit is repentance and then obedience. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Hmm. You don't like judgment? Well, I don't like it. But I think I can learn to expect it and love what it does for me. The gospel did not end at the garden. It did not end at the crucifixion. We do not omit the crucifixion to get to the resurrection. Rising cannot take place without death. Victory does not happen without 
humility. Right? In our distress, we see the effort of having to live with sin and its effect. And it's sometimes not pretty. It is hard. That's why the Bible calls it dying to self. It doesn't give flowery words like, beyond the uh, beautiful path of finding yourself. Welcome to the clouds. Hear the beautiful music. Dying to self is like wrestling with somebody 100 pounds more than you. It is hard. It is strenuous. And for anybody who gives you the idea that the Christian life is easy, then I wonder if they've been a Christian more than 30 seconds. It's in weariness that many people, when they see sin and its effect, I've heard him say many times, no more. I don't want this. But God will always move his people from a point of where they're experiencing judgment to where he wants them at a point of repentance. Repentance understands the depth of sin and its effect upon others. And feel so much remorse, you are willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. It doesn't give up when it gets hard. And this is what we see often with other Christians, other family members. It's just too hard. I'm sick of having the difficult conversation. It's too hard. Really. Well, that's not the life that God has called us to. Because sometimes there is a dying to self. There's a reason why he calls it, what kind of gate is it? A narrow gate. It's not the kind of gate everybody wants to walk through. This is a difficult thing. We don't give up when reputation is tarnished. We don't give up when it's hard. We often go through humiliation to die to self. A shallow apology and quick fix are not sufficient. We learn in our forgiveness that sin sometimes dies hard And we have to tarry a long night and not slumber like the disciples did in the garden. That's why many, when there's been a grievous sin in a family, the perpetrator might say, you know what, I said I was sorry two weeks ago. Why are you still upset? Because they have no idea of the effect that their sin has caused upon other family members. And instead of humbling ourselves, entering into the pain of others, and trying to understand, we don't want to go through it. But that's not the way of humility. That's the way of arrogance. That's the way of complacency, pride, comfortableness. The way of humility says, you know what? I've hurt you deeply. And for that, I'm really sorry. I'm willing to listen about the pain that I have caused you. And you empathize with them. You seek to understand them. That's what humility does. 
And I think that's part of the forgiveness process oftentimes when we've had grievous sin go on. When our strength is depleted, when drops of blood seem to be extracted from our lives, when the brutal consequences of sin bear marks upon our family and they suffer along with the crucifying of the flesh, God intervenes. I'm going to repeat it again. God intervenes and reminds us that he wants us to return again to seek his face to see him for who he really is. That there's, there, there's grace and understanding and mercy in the midst of the pain. The question is, are we going to settle in our comfort, take a shortcut and say no more, or die to self, and rest in him where our hearts are refreshed? How would you see your sin without judgment? Without his judgment, there would be no drops of blood when we come to the end of ourselves. Without his judgment, we would pridefully think we're okay. Perhaps a mark of maturity is for Christians to thank God for his judgment that makes a way for us to know his mercy and grace, and enjoy the pleasures of his presence. Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, cites an experiment done by a Harvard professor that gathered records of over a half a million defendants in New York City. The experiment was to decide which defendants to release on bail and compare two lists one list would be made by a computer that would receive a number of pieces of evidence and, and all kinds of information to make calculations. And the other list would be compiled by judges who would have the same data as the computer, but then would add to it their own eyes, their own emotional responses, the feelings about the defendant's Guess which was more accurate to determine which defendants would go out and commit another crime or not and not get bail. It wasn't even close. It was the computer. The people on the computer's list that it devised was 25% less likely to commit a crime while awaiting trial. The defendants and computer flagged as high risk, the, the ones that the computer said were high risk, the judges released half of them, 48.5%. Those in our society, given the job to judge about misdeeds, were all over the map. My point is not to point the finger at judges. It's human beings. We allow other factors to miscalculate justice. We interpret data through our own lens, and it's a toss-up if we get it right. I can't even judge correctly sometimes with the person in front of me, let's say my wife, 
who I love more than anyone, and we miscommunicate about things, misunderstand. I get that wrong. How in the world can I judge the rest of the world and the justice of all of morality and say, well, God is not a God who, you know, is going to judge. There shouldn't be that. Because I know what judgment should be like. I mean, the bombacity and arrogance is unbelievable. In a world where human perception varies and deviates, are we only left with a heartless computer? Is there such a thing as justice? Can justice be fair? Listen, I like our system. You do the best you can, and it seems they get it right more times than wrong. But it's got problems, I'll admit that. You do the best you can, right? But when it comes to final judgment, really getting it right, can justice be fair? You know what we need? We need someone completely objective. Where are you going to get that in a human being? Who has all of the facts of the evidence. Where are you going to get that? Omniscience. Who understands human motives. Who can look inside the human heart? Understands all of the context. Has a perfect comprehension of the moral law. For that, we need a holy, righteous, and perfect God. For Christians to talk about judgment is not an embarrassment. It is another aspect of the glory of God manifested. And I can learn to appreciate and accept even that amount of justice that's directed to me when it comes to discipline and know that without it, I would be lost. Without it, I wouldn't know the truth of the matter. And so I look to his word. I look to his spirit to convict me. And I affirm his truth and his sovereignty in my life. Let's pray.